afternoon, everybody, and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President for Policy Programs here at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. And I'm delighted to welcome you to today's, uh, to today's conversation, Having a Stake, the Potential of Employee Share Ownership for Workers in Business. Um, we have a terrific agenda for you today, and, um, and uh, we are uh, running a, a very tight schedule um, because we're delighted to have uh, Congressman Eric Paulson be joining us today. So uh, to kick off our conversation, I would like to ask um, uh, our wonderful uh, colleague uh, and senior fellow, Joseph Blasey, to uh, come and give an introduction of uh, Congressman Paulson. Um, Dr. Blasey is a professor at the Rutgers University School of Management and Labor Relations. He's the nation's leading expert on worker ownership, profit sharing, and other opportunities to offer more Americans the chance to have a stake in our economy. He is also the director of the Institute for the Study of Employee Ownership and Profit Sharing. And he is working with the Economic Opportunities Program this year as a senior fellow. So we are so delighted to have his, um, his expertise with us as we're trying to uh, work on these issues of employee ownership and how working people can have a stake in today's economy. So uh, let's welcome uh, Dr. Blasey to the podium. So good afternoon. Uh, I'm delighted to be helping Aspen Institute as a senior fellow and watching how this collaboration in Washington can amplify the research and policy work that we're doing at the new Institute for the Study of Employee Ownership and Management at Rutgers. Um, at this moment in time, there are more employee ownership bills in the House and Senate than at any other time ever in American history. The Main Street Employee Ownership Act passed the House with strong bipartisan support with a unanimous voice vote a few days ago. And six senators led by Senator Gillibrand and Senator Rish of Idaho have introduced it into the Senate. With real wages largely flat and declining for many demographic groups for several decades, with the returns to some forms of education and skill building in question, employee share ownership can potentially expand opportunities for low and modest income workers and is drawing some new potential attention. Today we have a veteran of shares, an expert, joining us and sharing his wisdom with us. It's my great honor today to introduce Congressman Eric Paulson, the representative of Minnesota's 3rd District. Congressman Paulson has not only been a strong advocate of legislation to promote employee share ownership for many years, he has the unique position of having more ESOP companies in his district than most districts of most members of Congress. He has, been, he has seen these companies and these ideas up close for a long time, and his commitment runs very deep and is based on solid understanding. Congressman Paulson was the original, original sponsor of the Promotion and Expansion of Private Employee Ownership Act, which encourages S-Corp ESOP transactions to the employee ownership model. Representative Paulson has also introduced bipartisan legislation to introduce stock options more widely to startups and privately held companies. So it is my great honor to introduce Representative Paulson. We are enormously grateful for him to be at Aspen today. Well, good afternoon, and uh, thank you, Dr. Blasey, for, uh, for the introduction. And thanks to Aspen for inviting me to be with you here today, um, as well as, uh, uh, I guess, uh, recognizing and thanking you for 
uh, all the work you do through Aspen's financial security programs, through Aspen's economic opportunities programs to help ensure that uh, we're talking about policies that are very important uh, that will help promote prosperity and long-term financial independence for American families across the spectrum, across the country. Um, so it's exciting that you mentioned a couple of the policy initiatives that I've been advocating for. I'll just touch on those real briefly. But I'm just really excited to be here this afternoon to talk about, the, I think, what is a prime driver of economic growth and innovation in our economy, and that is employee ownership. Um, and you talk about more initiatives being introduced in Congress right now, because I think as the education process has occurred over the last uh, several years in particular, more members of Congress are interested in doing what they can to promote this concept among their own constituents. Because at its heart, employee ownership is about opportunity. And it's an opportunity to give workers a stake in the very companies that they go to work to every day to help build, uh, to grow stronger, uh, to become larger. Um, in essence, it's really about owning a piece of the rock is really what it's about. And it is a way to also reward, I think, hardworking Americans who work at these companies, who invest their own time, who invest their own talent um, into the firms they work for. And it does give very low and modest middle-income families a leg up in retirement planning, which is very important. And that's why I think companies that have employee ownership consistently outperform those companies that do not have that option. And look, I mean, I think it makes sense, right? If you're an employee who knows a little bit more about how hard you work, it's gonna go right into uh, ending up not only in your own pockets, but into enhancing the company you're working for. You're probably gonna put a little bit more extra pride and effort into that uh, initiative. And that employee share, by the way, ends up not going right out the door, usually. It ends up getting tucked away for the most part uh, and saved. And it ends up being a larger, massive repository uh, of value at a time when 44% of Americans today have no retirement savings planning at all. And studies have shown that employees who work at employee-owned companies are more confident about their jobs, they're less anxious about their financial futures uh, uh, than workers that have no stake in the companies that they work at. And I think it's because that these employee owners, they worry far less about being able to cover expenses, they feel more fi financially sound, um, covering your mortgage payments, covering your rent payments, student loan costs, or un other unexpected bills, uh, they have a better confidence and feeling than does the rest of the population. And at a time, I think, when more than a third also of seniors are completely dependent on Social Security for their income, you can especially appreciate why it's so important to focus on these types of initiatives and opportunities. And when the federal budget is also constrained or strained in providing important security, safety, uh, safety net programs for our seniors, um, a family's ability to finance more of their own retirement and planning ahead also makes a lot of tr a tremendous sense and a difference. So we should be promoting, we should be encouraging expansion of employing ownership. And we've been working hard in a very bipartisan way. Um, it's not just the unanimous uh, legislation that passed yesterday, but there's other initiatives. Because if I look at employee sto stock ownership plans, you've got about 14 million people, I think, Americans that benefit from an ESOP plan that exists out there today. But there absolutely can be, uh, and there should be more. And the reason why these ESOPs work so well for employers and so well for employees uh, goes to these studies that have been done over the years. Studies that show that private employee stock ownership Retirement plans, they outperform the S&P uh, 500 in terms of total return at high percentages, by the way, up as high as 62% in 2015. And when you're talking about returns that are built up over decades or long periods of time for growth, 
that actually ends up making a real significant difference. And you're going to have a chance to see and ask those folks who are here on the panel today. I know Steve Smith, who's out here, uh, CEO of Amstead, uh, his employee model. Um, folks here like Parkita Puckett, who's going to just give a perspective uh, of an employee who works at Comsonics. Um, and I also know that S corporations who have been encouraged uh, to make the transaction over into an employee ownership or that model have been really successful. They've led the way in terms of greater firm longevity, higher wages, higher growth, job stability, retirement plan contributions uh, higher, employment and sales higher. In general, all that research proves that this model actually really does work. So we should be doing more of what we can to actually promote that type of uh, initiative. And I'm working on bipartisan legislation. Um, Representative Kine, Representative Reichert, every year we've been introducing uh, one bill in particular uh, called the Promotion and Expansion of Private Employee Ownership Act. It would just do a couple of things. One, it encourages owners of S corporations to sell their stock to an ESOP. It makes that encouragement. It ex expands financing opportunities for S corporations to actually get into that ESOP plan. It provides technical assistance for companies that might be interested in making that transaction. And it also ensures that any small businesses that go down this path that want to become ESOPs, that they retain their small business association certification, which is important for those that you know work with SBA loans, et cetera. And so you know, that, that's one sort of piece of the pie, I think, that members on the Ways and Means Committee and some of us that believe in this ownership model have focused on. And I think then there's an opportunity also to think about another segment of our economy that is also equally important, and that's the community of startup uh, companies. It's a big opportunity to incentivize employee ownership uh, in an area of the economy and with employees that is probably growing. And it's not just Silicon Valley with startups, it's across the country in many different areas. And there's nothing that is fundamentally more American uh, than having an idea, going out on your own, in the garage, in the backyard, doing your best uh, to succeed. But it's not easy. The failure rate ends up being very high, and when it comes to employee ownership at some of these tiny startups, the groups of four or five people that might be working out of the basement, for instance, the tax treatment has not been very fair. And that's because these are companies, they don't have cash to give to their employees, so what they do is, uh, in, is an incentive. They want to make sure they're giving their employees a piece of the rock, a stake with uh, a stock ownership in that company down the road with the hope that the company will be successful. Um, but what often happens is a big bill comes due with the IRS over time, and the employee either has a timeline where they have to cash in the stock, even though it might not be sellable in the open market, might be still held privately. So the employees end up uh, taking a big tax bill, many of them just sort of decline, we're not going to take the risk and pay the tax, and they just sort of let it, let, 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 let it languish, and, and, and they let it uh, go on the sidelines. And so we've made some progress in this area uh, by including some provisions in the last tax overhaul that we did that would allow some deferral of taxes that are normally due right up front uh, when you exercise a stock option like that. Uh, but we still have some more work to do in this space that will make it easier for startup employees in particular to do it. Um, and I would just ask the question, or and you might ask the question, why is that important? Uh, it is important because the employee owners at the firms of these three-employee, five-employee, seven-employee, small innovator companies, these are the big dreamers or the entrepreneurs that actually are a big component of our growing economy. For the first time, um, the, the Economic Bureau of Analysis is actually measuring digital trade with e-commerce just taking off. Startups are a big part of this environment as we're selling um, American goods and services around the world, but a lot of these startup initiatives are happening in 
you know, in, in the United States, which is exciting. So instead of taking a salary, a lot of these people are taking a piece of the rock in the hope of being a part of the dream of a significant financial future, sound future in the, in, in the, in a, down the road. So if the next garage uh, full of Facebook guys, uh, if they think they're going to wash out and they're not going to do real well uh, and they can't pay their tax bill, um, it, it, that, that's a long-term cost to our country. Um, and we've lost an opportunity. So we've got this bipartisan legislation, Joe Crowley and I, Democrat on the Ways and Means Committee that we've introduced to also expand and enhance that deferral for stock ownership for startups. And you're also gonna see some of our legislative leaders like uh, Congressman McCarthy is the majority leader, really pushing these type of initiatives as, they, as we have an innovation initiative that wants to make sure we're bringing in all different stakeholders to talk about opportunity in this space. So um, I think what it really means for, and for the panel and the folks who are gonna be talking here today, it's exciting because you've got more policymakers that are paying attention to uh, what, what's working in the market, what's working in the economy, and how do we replicate it? How do we enhance it? How do we make it stronger? How do we make it better? And I want to thank Aspen for hosting and bringing people together along that front. And our door is always open. So if other ideas come out of um, forums like this, um, we look forward to being able to take the initiative and the opportunity to act and uh, that's what it's really about, to making sure we're helping promote that prosperity and retirement savings for long term for a lot of American families down the road. Thanks for having me here. I apologize I have to rush out, but I know this is going to be a great segment. Thanks, Marie. All right. Well, that was terrific. I think uh, I think that deserves another round of applause. Thank you again, Congressman Hall. Um, and and I just wanted to say, I mean, I think that that sets the a great tone for this conversation. Um, we have materials about uh, this uh, various kinds of legislation to support employee ownership that are on our materials table. If you didn't um, catch them on your way in, please uh, pick pick it up on your way out. Um, uh, this is one of those issues that really does have great bipartisan support, um, and we've been been really pleased with with that. And I think it's, um, you know, it's. Uh, I think the congressman touched on a lot of the the reasons why. I think everybody's concerned about retirement security, um, which is one of the issues that, um, particularly our colleagues in our financial security program that is working with us today on on this event, um, has done a lot of work on retirement security. Um, business ownership as an economic opportunity strategy is, a, is an issue that my colleague Joyce Klein, who runs our field program, has very much uh, championed within the Economic Opportunities Program. And of course, at the Economic Opportunities Program, we work to advance a variety of policy strategies and ideas that help low and moderate income Americans connect to and thrive in our changing economy. And our Working in America series is really designed to think about what's going on in the world of work, and in particular, how can people um, get to those good jobs that give them their shot at the American dream. And of course, employee ownership is a, an important part of that. So it really crosses so much of our, our work that, that we're doing here um, at the Economic Opportunities Program. Um, and at the Financial Security Program. Um, I uh, want to, before I welcome our, our panelists to, to, the, to the stage, I want to do just a, a couple of things. First, I really do want to thank um, our supporters of this event, the Ford Foundation, the Prudential Foundation, and the Walmart Foundation, as well as J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Um, we can't do this work without their support, and we're extremely grateful for that. Um, I also just want, want to mention um, we are recording and live streaming. Um, so uh, if you haven't already, please do uh, silence your phones. Um, but uh, please do tweet. Our hashtag is talkgoodjobs. Um, 
And uh, I think that is what I need to do before uh, welcoming our speakers to the stage. So we are um, just delighted to have a wonderful lineup for you today. So let me welcome to the stage um, Amy Hall, Vice President, Social Consciousness at Eileen Fisher, uh, Marquita Madden Puckett, Customer Service Representative, Comsonics Incorporated, Stephen R. Smith, President and CEO, Amstead Industries, and Stephen Voigt, uh, retired President and CEO, King Arthur Flower, and uh, very grateful to have Heather Long, Economics Correspondent at the Washington Post, here to moderate today's conversation. So Heather, let me turn it over to you. Thank you. Great, thank you. Um, well, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground today with people who have actually done what we're talking about, not just studied it. Um, so we're going to try to talk about what you did, what the advantages and disadvantages are, and what your advice or needs are from policymakers and the community. And then we're going to have lots of time from, for questions from both the audience here in the room as well as anybody on social media who would like to tweet or ask a question that way. I think they've really set the stage pretty well for this discussion. I'll just make three quick points as um, coming at this as an economics reporter. Every conversation I have, including with Senator Thune last night, revolves around how do we have raise wages in this country and raise productivity? I mean, that's every conversation in DC right now. And this is one potential solution to that that we're going to get in today. The second thing I would say is that um, I know it's maybe more of a newer area that people in America are discovering, but if any of you have lived abroad, particularly in Europe, this idea of having more employee ownership has actually been a long trend in Germany, for instance. And it looks a little bit different than the ESOP programs we're going to be talking a lot today in Germany, but certainly that country uh, believes that their employee ownership model has actually really driven their productivity, especially in the manufacturing sector. So it's something to think about here in the United States more. And finally, just to throw out kind of an interesting stat that I, as I was reading, uh, since the 1970s, 1974, 23,000 companies have done what the folks on this stage have done, have converted to some sort of employee stock ownership plan or program. So it's, it's happening in the United States, perhaps more than some of us realize, but it's still a very small part of what we're doing in the U.S. So uh, Steve Voigt, we'll start with you. Uh, you're at King Arthur Flower. Tell us briefly what your company does or that company does and why you went to this model. Sure. Uh, King Arthur Flower started um, in 1790, the second year of George Washington's presidency. Um, <laughs> I came to the firm a little bit later. Um, we imported flour at that time from the UK, flour that you couldn't get in this country. And uh, that was just a regional brand. And over time, it's become a premium company, a baking company uh, throughout the United States. Um, uh, we, we started with really open book management. We were actually asking employees to act like owners in 92. It was all the rage. We were playing the great game of business and uh, we were getting great results. Uh, we doubled sales and double employment in just the first couple of years after I got there and after the team really embraced this uh, great game of business. And it was at about that time that the fifth generation owner 
was trying to figure out what his succession plan was going to be. And he looked at other things. Um, we'd seen other companies in the state of Vermont um, grow and then sell out, and they would move jobs, move um, out of the state. Um, he didn't want to do that. He didn't um, want to sell to uh, disinterested members of his family. And he decided, you know, the family of employees that are working hard here, this is the family that is going to take care of this legacy of five generations well into the future, this, this mission. And so in 96, uh, we set up an ESOP that bought 30% from him. Mm. Um, and in 99, um, this was according to a 10-year plan we kind of laid out, uh, we bought a controlling interest. And at that point, we were, uh, we were about 50 million in sales and 200 employees. And then in 2004, we became 100% owned. Uh, we were up to, um, well, right now there are 350 employees that work for King Arthur Flower and over 130 million in sales. So those might not be big numbers in DC, but I can tell you in Northern New England, that's a pretty, pretty good uh, growth story. Um, along the way, uh, we became a founding benefit corporation. Uh, constantly getting kind of the best for workers award, which is the subcomponent for how we um, relate to workers, and are on, annually on the best places to work list, and we're named employee-owned company of the year a couple years ago. So I guess in summary, um, I would say great people working in a great culture with shared rewards and a good mission has uh, done great things in our company, and there are other ESOP companies like us in Northern New England who have similar stories. And briefly, how hard is it, was it for the company to make that transition? On a scale of one to 10, if a business owner is watching this or thinking about it, mm -hmm. what advice would you say? Is this a 10 on, on the difficulty scale or not so bad? You know what, it's like going out when it's really cold outside. It's hard to do when you're inside and it's warm, but just put on some coats and get outside and it's easy. So it was kind of hard when you're at the precipice, but it became so easy afterwards because all the employees are wondering what's gonna happen when so-and-so leaves, what's the plan? There's a lot of uncertainty. That doesn't really help for good culture. So clarity on what's gonna happen next and the role that I'm gonna have in that actually is very empowering, hmm. so not hard. Hmm. Marquita, let's turn to you. You're coming to us from just down the road in Harrison, uh, Harrisonburg, Virginia. Now, you work at a company called Comsonics. Can you tell us a little bit about what your company does and uh, when your company went to, what model they're using now? Um, Comsonics is 100% ESOP. Uh, we became ESOP initially in 1975 when the founder of the company uh, was beginning to think about his exit plan and his retirement. Uh, the company was basically founded in the basement of his home. And he worked, they worked out of his home for many years. Um, the legend around Comsonics, we still call them this. Uh, we're starting to retire um, some of the group that was called the boys in the basement. Uh, the founder's <laughs> wife called, they were like family to them, and she would refer to them as the boys in the basement. Um, actually, you know, the neighbors started to complain and he had to find a bigger place to move the business to as, as it grew because there was no parking for everybody that was starting to work out of his basement. Um, we manufacture test equipment for the cable TV industry. We also uh, service that equipment. Uh, Comcast, Cox, those are our customers. Uh, we also uh, do some man uh, contract manufacturing and we recently acquired a company in Georgia that does uh, cable, uh, cable assemblies. So we're growing, um, but like I said, we, we became an ESOP as part of the exit plan for our founder. Uh, he learned about the concept. He was really excited about it, 
and he thought it would be a great thing. He wanted to preserve what he built. He wanted to kind of reward the group of people that were working with him from the very beginning and not have them go through a bunch of change. Um, so he thought that it would be a great thing to put an ESOP in place. Um, the joke around uh, at that time was, you know, one of the boys in the basement on his departure became our CEO and just retired about three years ago. Um, the joke at the time was that Warren uh, retired and gave them the business. And Dennis always said, no, you didn't give us the business, we bought the business. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you sit on uh, the employee advisory committee at your firm? Currently I don't, but for I've been with the company for 17 years. For 10 years I served on our employee advisory committee. For seven years I chaired that committee, which means that I was also a full voting member of our board. Uh, okay, so so can you explain a little bit how that works? So even though all the employees have a, a financial stake, did they also have a management stake? Um, that's something that was put in place when that committee was established. One of the things that Dr. Braun, our founder, you know, he thought that everybody was going to be excited like he was about this ESOP concept. He found once it started going into place that people weren't automatically excited. They didn't make that connection with it. So one of the things that was done was this committee was put in place to begin to communicate all things ESOP to our employees, hmm. to make sure that they began to understand what it meant to be an owner and what this meant, what this, what this meant for them going forward. Um, and one of the things that they instituted, or that he instituted at that time, was to make sure that, that, that the person who chaired that committee actually served on the board kind of as a liaison. Um, during my tenure on that committee, uh, one of the things that happened is our CEO retired, our second ever CEO. So we had to communicate that change was taking place. Mm -hmm. In an ESOP company, you worry about when new leadership is coming in. Are they going to be ESOP friendly? Are they going to be industry friendly? Are they going to be able to balance the two? We've been very fortunate in that um, we've, we've got a new, new leadership and a new CEO who fits our culture very well. Um, maybe didn't know everything about ESOP. Um, but understood the culture uh, and just naturally fit. Huh, that's neat. That's neat. Amy, uh, your company, Eileen Fisher, needs no introduction probably to anyone in this room. Um, so, but tell us a little bit about the evolution that Eileen Fisher has done. Um, if I remember correctly, you all started out with a profit sharing model and then went to an ESOP. So mm -hmm. talk us through that. Why go from one to the other? Well, uh, it's a great question. So we were founded in 1984, and um, I joined the company in 1993. So the, when I joined, I think was around the first year, within the first year or two, that we started offering profit sharing. And the idea, you know, from the day that Eileen founded the company, she was very much um, uh, conscious of the contribution that all the employees made to the success of the company. From day one, it was a, it's always been a very collaborative culture, workplace culture. And in the early days, around when I joined, um, she began to, she wanted to monetarily recognize um, everybody's contributions to the company and began this profit sharing plan, whereby uh, at the end of every fiscal year, which is our calendar year, um, a minimum of 10% of the company's profits are distributed to all the employees. Um, and sometimes it's been more, you know, if we have a very successful year. Um, and I think in the whole time that I've been with the company, there's only one year where we didn't get any profit sharing, just to reflect uh, reality. Um, and then as Eileen, who had always been the single owner of the company, 100% owner, she began to contemplate the future of the company and recognizing her own mortality, 
um, about 20 years in, so around mid-2000s, she began to think about what are, the, what's, what are my options as a, as a company owner? How can I ensure that this company will be left in good hands and will retain its soul, its heart and soul, which had been so important to our brand and our, and our workplace? She did explore um, some of the more traditional avenues, such as um, selling the company to a bigger company, mm. uh, going public, that kind of thing, nothing appealed to her. She could not find a solution that really respected the culture of a company and really the, the bigger message behind the brand, which is more than just the clothing. And so the ESOP became very, very appealing to her. She saw it as a way to leave the company in the hands of the employees who, have, who up to that point had brought it the success that it had enjoyed. At, so in 2005, she sold uh, just over 30% of the company into the ESOP trust. Um, and therefore, uh, from the very beginning of the ESOP, we were about 30% owned, employee owned. And now, today, she has sold a little bit more. We're about 40% employee owned. And that's where we are today. And I think she feels really comfortable with that. That's great. Mm -hmm. And do employees have any, any management uh, stake in, in the company? You know, I was really fascinated by Marquis. I felt like I wish I brought some note-taking um, equipment. I, I no, actually, I don't think so. I mean, not in the formal way that Marquita was describing. It's a very, very, as I mentioned, collaborative atmosphere. Everybody is comfortable speaking up and having a voice. But I would say it's a much more in a sort of a familial way mm. rather than a structured way mm. up to this point. Mm. And last but certainly not least, Steve Smith, um, why don't you talk us through Amstead Industries, um, a little bit about what your company does and how you came to be, uh, I believe, 100% employee owned. Uh, we're probably one of the least known $4 billion companies in, in the country. <laughs> um, and we like it that way because we don't care about the egos and the press. It's for our employees and our customers that we do it. But if you've ever seen a freight train, then everything those freight cars are riding on, you've seen uh, Amstead Rail product. Or if you've ever seen a heavy-duty truck on the road, the hubs, the in interiors, that's our Comet business. If you've ever ridden in a Ford or a GM or a, probably a Honda or a Mazda or a Chrysler, and you probably have, then some of the clutches and the transmissions, that's uh, our means and BN businesses as well. So. Um, we all together have over 50 plants in, in towns like Keokuk, Iowa, Groveport, Ohio, Kansas City, Granite City, Illinois, and, and uh, we are 100% owned uh, by our ESOP. We have been since 1985. We date back to 1902. We still have foundries. Not quite George Washington, right, right, but right, pretty close. good. <laughs> we have foundries that were pouring hot metal then for castings for the rail industry, and they still are today, and still have good blue-collar jobs there of people who own the company as well. And uh, Amstead, actually, uh, uh, there was a chance that it would be taken over back in the 1980s. That was before my time. Um, but uh, instead, the management chose to sell two-thirds of the company to and ESOP. And then in uh, uh, 1998, when Congress did a very smart thing and the law changed so that you could have an S-Corp owned by an ESOP, we became 100% owned and have been ever since. And uh, it's a very successful pattern. And I'll just say on the governance issue too, we're, we're unique a little bit, but our ESOP participants get to vote on the entire board every year. And so it's a little intimidating being the CEO, knowing your employees are going to 
vote on you every year, but it, it's a structure that's worked really well for us. So, so you're still here. So I'm still, I'm still here right now. <laughs> well, Steve, uh, just to stay with you for a minute, it's interesting that everyone else on the panel said it was really driven by secession planning that right. ultimately caused the company to go to ESOP. Now, you had a, your company had a different uh, modus to go there. Tell us, explain to people a little bit why this ESOP helps prevent a takeover, a hostile takeover. Well, you know, once, once you are in that structure and it's working and the employee engagement produces success um, and that culture produces success and that structure, the SESOP structure, which Congress enabled produces success, it's difficult for an outsider to come in and say, well, there's a better financial model that's going to ultimately produce better mm -hmm. returns for the shareholders and who are your employees as well. And if you look at the employees as a group, which is your shareholder body as a group, you know, I would argue that any successful ESOP company is going to long-term produce a better return for their owner employees than some outside hedge fund or foreign owner or someone along that line. So that yeah. it does give you a stability in the structure remaining in those communities. So. Well, um, now we've gotten a good intro about why people did this and how it works, and we can see there's different models just from what you're sharing. Um, I thought we'd play a little game. I used to write a column called Cheers and Jeers, where I had to say some good things and some bad things that happened every week. And so yeah, many of you have hinted at some of the good aspects of an ESOP, but I thought we'd force you all to say maybe two, one or two things that were positive that you didn't expect beyond preventing hostile takeovers or getting a clear succession. And then one thing that maybe didn't go as well or is still a little bit more of a struggle uh, with the ESOP. Um, well, I hate to turn to you first, but you're right here, so yeah. we'll go back to you. <laughs> yeah, so um, just the, uh, the unexpected pleasures were the kind of the funny things that came up from the employees that were related to being um, shareholders. So um, kind of coming up with the idea of when you earn rights to the stock that's in your ESOP over time, they call that vesting. And it was a really big deal that everybody actually got a vest when they were fully vested. So there were <laughs> King Arthur vests worn very proudly and everybody knew when I get to be here seven years and I have control over all the stock that's in my account, I get a vest. Um, negatives weren't many. I, I, I think the, the only one was early days. It, was, it, it wasn't understood as well. You know, it was, it was kind of a, it's on a piece of paper. They're talking about this. And it was really just over time and when people retired and took uh, significant value with them that it made sense. But early days, it was a little... A little bit of an unknown. I love that vest example. Did it help with employee retention? It sounds like <laughs> if uh, you, you want to stay for your vest, that's least, right. That's you can right. change They're colors. One of the things. Years. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but no. But seriously, did, was there a significant increase, maybe, in, in employee retention or kind of a well, vibe? Well, um, our, our our turnover rate was always low. In fact, mm. at board meetings, we talked about it being too low um, <laughs> in, in in terms of a, a performance um, aspect, and we worked really hard. Uh, developmentally to give everybody they you know every opportunity they needed um, so uh, retention was never a problem we, we always had people coming and we're in the in the lowest unemployment area in uh, the states of Vermont New Hampshire so it was we, we were a draw yeah yeah how about for you Marquita and, and your um, I was trying to think of, of a jeers, but <laughs> <laughs> we, 
you know, the tears, I think, over the last, and it's probably the same for both sides, is the, the change. Um, you've got to constantly communicate, sometimes to the point that you feel like you're being repetitive. Um, but we've recently, you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen some growth. And we see a lot of excitement among new employees because they've had experience outside of the ESOP culture. And it, when you've been in the ESOP culture for so long, you begin sometimes to take it for granted and, and you, you forget just how good sometimes you have it. Um, so when we bring in new people, particularly when we, brought, when we bought the company in Georgia, um, that group down there, which I haven't had the privilege yet to go down and meet some of them in person, but they are so excited. Mm. And when they officially became participants, it's just like they cannot hear enough about ESOP. Mm. And they want to understand what this means to them as a benefit, and they just, they're just loving it. On the other side of it, I work in the corporate office in, in Harrisonburg. Uh, we've got employees that have been with us for 40 years. They're tired of hearing about the ESOP. They just, they're just ready to retire and they want their money. Um, <laughs> so some, but at the same time, you've got to keep repeating the message because even then you still find sometimes that they don't know everything they, that you would assume that they know. So it's kind of a double-edged sword um, because you've got this, you've got this um, diverse group and you've got one message, and you've got to make sure that everybody's getting it. And when did you think employees really started to um, realize what, what this was all about? Was it when they started getting paychecks that listed how much is vesting, kind of like your 401k statement? Or? I, I think for most people it becomes real when they are, after they become a participant, which is you know after that first year and after they have a thousand hours in and they become a participant, and then the next annual meeting when they get that first certificate. Mm. For a lot of people, that's when it really starts to become real. Uh, they get a hint, a glimpse of it before then, though. I, I can remember even going in for my interview at Comsonics, and you knew when you stepped in the door that there was something different about the place. That it was just like, these people are just too happy. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's just a certain amount of satisfaction that comes from working at a place where you can actually, where you show up, you do your job, and it makes a difference. It reflects on that bottom line. And where you're, it's, it's known that you do your job and you do it well, and if you have a suggestion to make, it matters, and it can impact not just your area, but everybody else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's just, a, there's just a different air about it. Amy, how about for you all? You know, um, because it, going back to the fact that we were established in a highly collaborative way and we have this profit sharing plan, to a large degree, our, um, the kind of principles behind an ESOP already existed within our, our company. And so when we added the ESOP, I wouldn't say there was a kind of a giant wow factor. However, to Marquita's point, every year we get that statement that says what the current value is. It's, it's rather exciting. You get a little bit of a you know, titillation that's like, oh, we're, we're heading in the right direction and um, hopefully it'll be there when I retire and all of that. So there's that kind of excitement. And on the kind of negative side, I, I wouldn't even use that word, it's too strong, but I would say we, we don't play up the ESOP enough in our, in our culture. There's so many good things that happen in our company. We are also a certified B Corporation and a New York State mm -hmm. Benefit Corporation. And so there's a lot of good um, karma already um, within the within the company. The one thing is, because of this employee ownership mentality, people do expect their voice to be not just heard, which it is, but acted on. And when you have 11 or 1,200 people in the company, you can't act on every single person's particular desire or opinion. You know, it's a, it's a 
it's a bubbling up of kind of where is the energy, and there's still a senior leadership team that makes the final decisions. And so I would say there's, you know, it's, it's a tension between wanting, wanting everybody to be heard and making the best decision on behalf of the whole, and sometimes they don't match. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And would you say it's almost a recruiting tool, like when, when you're able to, for people, do they ever mention it as, as you try to lure people to come to it, Eileen Fisher? It's one of many aspects, one value that we that we do promote, but it's one of many, so yeah. it's hard to say if this is the one that Right, that tips the people. scale. Yeah. yeah. And how about for you all? Well, I think that the cheer for me has been uh, having lived through the Grand Recession in 2008, 2009, and obviously we were affected like most businesses were, and our stock price fell. And I was pleased, you know, we're an old ESOP, a mature ESOP, and people took it calmly. They understood we were a cyclical company, they didn't panic, and uh, they stayed strong, and they realized we'd come out on the other side. And so, you know, in a way, that was a cheer for me, how well and mature our, our participants reacted. I guess the jeer would be, um, you know, the great thing about us being a mature ESOP is we're now paying out a lot of money to our retirees or to people who are getting ready for retirement. So we're paying out millions uh, consistently every quarter to them. That obviously does my heart good because that's what we want to do. But on the other hand, we're a capital intensive business too. So we have to manage cash very carefully as well. So we, you have to pay very close attention to that. Frankly, I think that's a great discipline that would be good whether we're an ESOP or not. <laughs> But you have to mind your P's and Q's to make sure you can both satisfy those ESOP holders and invest in the business as well. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. interesting. Amy and Steve Smith kind of both went in this direction, so maybe we'll throw it open to everybody. And that's, uh, it seems like one of the harder challenges of this ESOP model is this tension that Amy was talking about between employees and management, particularly in periods when maybe things aren't going so well, whether it's because of a great recession or I mean, I'm in media, you know, your whole industry business model's changing. And so, so um, yeah, talk, talk us through a little bit about that. Uh, has it ways that you were able, your companies have been able to navigate uh, through tough times with an ESOP model? Is it, it has to be harder, I'm sure. Um, I think what we've done well at Comsonics is you keep communicating. You don't stop communicating because things are bad. Uh, we have quarterly meetings with all the employees, our CEO, uh, having served on the board, I tell every uh, employee owner that I get a chance to that the same presentation he gives to employees every quarter is the same presentation that he's giving to our full board mm -hmm. when they have their meetings. You're not getting anything different. And the big thing that I've also stressed to them is where they think, uh, you know, he waves a magic wand and he makes all decisions sometimes when, when we don't get to, you know, we're grumbling about why we're doing this or why we're doing that is that there are people that are holding him accountable for us. Um, and so, you know, there's checks and balances, balances in place. We don't get to make all the decisions. Sometimes he's not really making all the decisions, but the decisions being made that's in the best interest uh, uh, for us as shareholders, so. I think following up on that, you know, the ESOP is legally structured as a trust, but that's not just a legal structure. It affects how management thinks as well, because mm -hmm. you do have a trust relationship with your employees. And, you know, a lot of transactions and acquisitions are done, I think, for the ego of management sometimes or to be in the press. And you really don't want to do that when it's the people sitting outside your door that you're going to jeopardize their futures if you take undue risk. So I think it makes us better managers uh, on the whole. We always say we hit singles and doubles. We don't go for the home run that is you know, going to be uh, jeopardized the well-being and the wealth of all our employees. 
Yeah, yeah. Do people come up to you in the parking lot a lot to, to share their views? You know, the, we're very open door, so I hear a lot of views. <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> uh, Steve Voigt, you were sort of speaking before this event a little bit about a unique model, I think, that was at your company. Yeah, um, another employee-owned company came up with this uh, model that uh, we use to communicate. Um, it turns out before things, um, went through an economic downturn, but it, it's just a great tool anyway. And it, it had five stages. And if you're not hitting your plan, you might be in stage one. If you're 40% you know, below sales, which when we we're talking about the Great Recession, a lot of businesses were there, then you're in you know, stage five. And, and we would report out monthly where we are. We aren't even on this matrix because we are hitting plan. Mm. That's great. But if um, you're down below your sales budget for a quarter, you might be in stage two. And they know, because they've seen the same matrix for months and years, what stage two means and what we're all expected to do, each with our own different responsibilities, to get it out of two back up to one and then get back off the matrix completely. So there's uncertainty when businesses are having tough times. And it's like, are people going to get laid off? And are, are we going to close this division? or? close this facility or something. And you can see that on the matrix that those things are down in stage five and stage four, and we're talking that we're at stage one and we're working hard, all of us, to not fall to stage two. And oh, by the way, the questions that are in the back of your mind are down there in four and five. So this tool was, was very helpful over the years as a way to just keep the information uh, flowing, kind of this open book, but almost from a risk management standpoint, yeah. not in a financial statement standpoint. That's an interest to keep everybody on the same page. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like the better version of the terror warning colors. Mm -hmm, <laughs> you know, your your mm -hmm. five matrix level, mm -hmm. perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously, we had the congressman here earlier. There's a huge amount of interest at the federal level in doing more legislation. Also, we were talking earlier at the state level. You were speaking a bit about some some a center in Vermont that mm -hmm. helps to make this happen. I believe Colorado recently passed a similar initiative to try to get this more happening in their state. Um, what would your advice be to lawmakers? What would make what do you think might make this easier for more companies to do? So we can go from having 23,000 that have done this in the past three decades to many, many more in this country. Um, visit. So, uh, Vis visit the ESOP companies. So just okay. Yeah. Step step inside. Um, I know that's that's been a big thing. We we make the push for it all the time. We've been successful sometimes. We um, if you're in DC, go visit your congressperson. Mm. Um, drop off information. Make sure they know what an ESOP is, and give them a chance to put some faces uh, with the companies. You know, I read the other day. I think there's 16,000 private companies out there that are not private equity owned, and yet I, I think Alex Brill did a study saying that only one percent of companies that go through a transition as opposed to being bought by private equity or going through an IPO um, or doing a merger with someone, only 1% convert to ESOPs. Hmm. So, you know, we're just touching a small portion of the opportunity there. And there's legislation pending right now that would make it a lot easier for some of these private companies, S-Corps in particular, to convert. There's ideas about making ESOP loans to enable the conversion right. at the purchase, uh, advantageous to banks. So I think there's things that could be done. 
And I think our business schools, too, ignore that as part of their agenda. Joseph has a program at Rutgers, but I think that's very rare. And, and our, we train people to be investment bankers coming out. We don't train them to think about how we could have more of this structure, which you know, would address some of the wealth inequality uh, aspects we have on our society as well. Talk a little bit more specifically about um, what, what that loan could enable a company to do uh, if there was some sort of federal or state level program. And also, perhaps you're familiar with this, uh, would tax advantages help or hurt? The congressman spoke a little bit about that. This you know, the SE Corp structure does have some tax advantages. So when someone sells to uh, an ESOP, they can defer their gain on the mm -hmm. sale. So that is one advantage that is already there. Uh, we always make sure members of Congress realize what a good job they did back in 1998 when they made that possible. So that does help. But that's not available for a lot of the corp private companies out of there. So the bill that's pending right now would actually expand that and make right. that more broadly available. And then if banks could, could exclude some of the interest income if they lent to an ESOP, what that does is, you know, Marquita said, you know, you didn't give us, or did you say, you didn't give us the company, you sold it. Well, someone has to pay for that, and that's the ESOP trust. And if banks could be encouraged by some kind of incentive, maybe less taxing on the interest they earn, by lending to an ESOP trust, I think that would be beneficial as Interesting. well. Interesting, yeah. And uh, Steve, you also had mentioned there's a lot of startup costs when you do this initially. It's there, there are. In, in, um, in Vermont, once you get uh, an owner looking at considering an ESOP, at a certain point you have to move beyond just rough calculations and you need to actually do some serious work And um, because meeting this cash planning need as well as the um, regulatory requirements are substantial and you've got to do a study. So that's a big chunk of money that a entrepreneur is being asked to, to put up. And um, um, I've seen uh, the case where there are funds made available that is just, that's all that's needed to actually get them to do it. And then they look at the results and then they go, okay, th this does solve my needs. So that's, that's, a, that's a modest financial amount, right. which can actually help ESOP formation. Right, interesting. Um, I'm wondering, you know, throw out to anyone, but how you think America would change if we went from a nation where, as Steve was saying, uh, Steve Smith, that we have oh, such a few, maybe 1% or less of companies who are in this ESOP model to one where we had uh, many, many more companies that were like this. You know, I, I, the thing that's in my head right now, there was a statistic thrown out, I think perhaps before we entered this room, around, I think it was 40 or 44 percent of Americans don't have any kind of retirement savings. Mm -hmm. I feel like if more companies went this route, not only would we be supporting um, more people post-retirement in a way that we can't as a society right now, but there would be that, you know, wealth distribution, that closing of the wealth gap, and um, really helping and really supporting the democratic principles of this country in a way, you know, employee voice, employee ownership, it's all wrapped up together in the kind of the origins of this country. And I feel like we've really gotten away from it right now. Um, uh, just almost fell into a big hole there. I don't want to get into political, but anyway, I just feel like it would, it would really serve to um, solve a lot of societal inequality that we have right now. Mm -hmm. I'd add, I think what Marquita said about even interviewing at Comsonics, you, you walked in there and you had that feeling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we felt that at other employee ownership companies. And employee ownership companies are very open to helping other companies. So you're not just creating value in your own company, you're actually helping the community, the broader community, 
be successful, develop people, financial literacy. I mean, you know, Im imagine if, if we have a nation of entrepreneurs who really kind of understand some of these tough business decisions that get made. You make it and you move on and you, know, you focus on the future and just keep going. And there, there, there's a lot of very positive, empowering things in the employee ownership companies that I've had um, experience with. And to imagine a whole country focused on that, benefiting from that, that's exciting. Joseph Blasey wrote a very good book once about how the founding fathers really envisioned uh, everyone being sort of owners and things like the Homestead Act and others really encouraged that. Well, shares could be sort of the new vehicle for doing that if you spread it more broadly. And I think if more people felt like owners, it would be healthy psychologically, sociologically, other ways for our, mm -hmm. yeah. for our country. Do you want to just stand up, uh, Professor, and just say really quickly a, a little bit more about what Steve Smith just teed up? Well, just for a second, thanks, thanks, Steve. So we wrote a book called The Citizen Share in which we, uh, in which we, oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> so we wrote a book called The Citizen Share. Chapter one looks at the, uh, all the writings uh, using the uh, 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 University of Virginia's database and all the writings of the founders and how they saw that broad-based property ownership was necessary to sustain a democratic republic. And even though there weren't ESOPs at this period of time, uh, there's a lot of evidence of great agreement among many of the founders of the republic on this issue. And uh, so I, I think it's an interesting way to think of it. So you just don't think of it in terms of tax incentives and resilience. I mean, there's some basic things like hey, this might be about democracy. So hmm. that's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> More in the questions, perhaps, in the Q&A on that. Um, uh, and um, before we, uh, we're about ready to open it up for audience questions. I'm, I'm sure we'll have a lot from different folks who want to know more. But I'm curious to kind of wrap up um, before we go to the audience. Uh, are you, is anybody getting calls from other companies who want to do this? Is there anything that feels like we're at a, a momentum or a tipping point here where, where you're either hearing, I don't know, from labor groups or other CEOs or, or more lawmakers? Um, is that happening? I mean, yes. I, do, I do occasionally get calls, but I would like it to be more prevalent, I guess, is what I would say, yeah. And in a nutshell, what's the business case you make when you're a huge company, you know, you've all done it successfully, what, 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 Sort of what's the 30-second elevator pitch you give when they call? Well, you know, you find a lot of times it's, it's people who do have somewhat of a paternalistic attitude and they care about their employees. Mm -hmm. If someone's in there just for the quick buck and, you know, in and out in five years, it's not going to appeal to them. But people who want to build something sustainable mm -hmm. over the long term, then it can be very appealing to them because this is really an opportunity to do that. I guess another um, quick one we, we touched on maybe earlier and I'd love to share with the audience is uh, the buzzword millennials. Uh, I'm one of them. I've changed jobs many times. Uh, you know, how, how does this ESOP model work in a world where people like me aren't, aren't always so loyal to companies, uh, maybe don't appreciate the more paternalistic model? Can, can that still work? I, I think it works great. Um, even, if, even if we have three or four years of a high-powered, talented millennial, um, that's fantastic. And isn't it fantastic for them early in their career to be exposed to a company that is all about empowerment and transparency, open book, and um, sharing the success of, of the business? That's, that, that's a good leading indicator, if you ask me. Hmm. Hmm. 
And we find that they like the setting of teamwork. So they come in not focused on the retirement or yeah. obviously, <laughs> or not thinking they could ever stay at one company for 30 years, heaven forbid, much less three. But, uh, <laughs> but they like the concept of being there as a team. And then once they're there and we have the benefit of being large, we move them around a lot and then that satisfies some of their wanderlust uh, that way. So. <laughs> and I agree with something you had said earlier, which is, you know, I think it, it serves as a great um, attraction into the, into the company along with, with, you know, the other values and, and benefits that you might offer. But there's a lot of competition for talented millennials. And so this, is, this could be this mm -hmm. thing that serves as a tipping point Absolutely. to get mm -hmm. them in. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good transition to throw it open to the audience uh, or, or um, oh, lots of hands already. I guess we'll start and work our way across the room, sir. Oh, Mike's coming. Why don't you stand up and just say who you are and then throw a question out. Hi, I'm John Wheatley. I'm with Ballard Spar, a law firm uh, with an office here in DC. Um, it was mentioned that uh, these ESOPs are structured as trusts. I wonder how is the management of the trust uh, generally appointed, and, and, and then what kind of responsibility do they have to the employees, and, and, and what happens when you, you deal with things like the need for layoffs? Great question. So, so there's, there's two kinds of trustees. There's some, some companies, and generally smaller ones, have internal trustees. So, you know, certain members of management are, are sometimes, you know, I think Marquita, you might have been, I don't know, on your trust or not. But then a lot of companies have external trustees too. So there are institutions out there that perform that role. They have a fiduciary duty under ERISA and uh, they ultimately vote the shares on behalf of the participants. As I said, in our company, the participants get to give direction how to vote uh, and they, they appoint the board. So that's how the governance structure works. And anybody want to say a little bit about layoff experience? Is it still possible to do layoffs with an ESOP? Any, any experience with that? It happens. Uh, one of the things that we were talking about before we came in was that hopefully in an ESOP setting, it's not catching anybody off guard. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to making sure you're communicating the bad news uh, and not just always the good news. Um, I think there's an advantage in an, in an employee-owned company that if you know things are downturned, like I think about our group, uh, if things are slowing down, then we get really innovative. Uh, we begin to think, what else can we do to diversify what we've been offering? Maybe there are things that we can service for customers that we've been turning away. Maybe while, it's, while we have this downtime, we need to look into being able to offer that service in the future. Um, so we do get innovative in trying to you know, retain everybody um, but it happens. It's not avoidable. Okay. Yep. Hi, my name is Rachel Minogue from Third Way. Um, one criticism of ESOPs I've heard before is that it doesn't allow employees to diversify their retirement savings. Do you think that's a fair concern? And have any of your organizations taken steps to address this risk? Can I take that one? <laughs> <laughs> I always call that argument a red herring that you hear from academics because it's not the real world, really. One thing, the members of Congress were very, well, I'll start even further back. Half of Americans don't have, or nearly half, don't have any retirement program in their jobs. So now you're ahead of that half already, no matter how these are structured. Second, it's all, it's com company funded. You know, there aren't many company funded retirements at all anymore. This isn't the workers' money, it's company funded. Shares are being put in by the company. 
And the members of Congress were very intelligent when they wrote this law. They require diversification opportunities in the law. When you reach, reach age 55, you have to be able to diversify 25%. When you reach 60, you have to be able to diversify 50%. So that's built in. And then most ESOP companies I know, not all, but most, also have a 401k. So we, we give a 5% match in our ESOP shares every year, and we give a, a, a not a match, but a 5% contribution, and then we do a 5% match on our 401k as well. And so they have that diversification, which is comparable to any other company as well. As so I will tell you, their ESOP accounts do way better than their 401k accounts, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. All right, one. we all want to go work for Amstead yeah. now. <laughs> There's but, one thing different we do. I'd like to chime in there. Uh, at Comsonics, uh, at one point we lost a couple of good employees because at the time they were able to take their money with them right away. And life happened, some things came up and they left. So one of the things that's been built into our plan now is if you, every seven years you're allowed to diversify 20% of your account. Mm. So you can either pull that money out knowing that you'll be responsible for the penalties and taxes or if you choose to diversify it in some other way. And then you still have that age 55 diversification option. But that was something that was put in place to retain employees if something came up and they needed to have access to that. It's really interesting. What about at Eileen Fisher? Is it a similar structure? Or they... I mean, I think uh, what Steve just mentioned really resonates with me. We have a 401k plan. We have yeah. ESUP. And um, we can't really, as employees, can't really touch uh, the money um, unless we want to pay a penalty until we're 59 and a half. Um, you know, and it's otherwise very standard structure. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I saw some other hand, I think, up here. Was there some, did I miss somebody? Was that uh, yeah. in the front? Uh, wait, just, he's coming with the microphone. Hi, I'm Mari Bonmezon. All of you sell a product, but have you known other ESOPs that give a service? Hmm. That's primarily what I do day to day. Our, the service is we repair uh, equipment for the cable TV industry. So even though we manufacture products specifically, my role is on the service side of our, our, our group. Um, so I would say that, um, I was thinking about this on the drive up here, one of the things that we really have an opportunity to do is establish relationships. And we can think about the fact that we really directly impact um, the success of, of our part of the business uh, by making sure that we're maintaining good relationships and taking care of our customers. Um, and that obviously impacts the bottom line and impacts that statement we see every year. So we, we do work in the service side as well. And we've seen a lot of contracting, engineering, and architectural service firms, for example, which are organized as ESOPs as well. So yeah. when, when you look in the back of directories of some of these associations that focus on employee ownership companies, um, several of them have uh, NI, NAIC code things and there there's a company behind almost every code. Hold on. Yeah. They got the microphone oh, there. Okay. Oh. But I was wondering if how much of that is uh, like giving favoritism to other ESOP companies where hiring the you know maybe the ESOP engineering firm when maybe the price would be a little lower with a non-ESOP firm. I'm wondering is there much of that? I'm personally not aware of that, but that's a great idea. There may be some who do that. I don't know. 
I yeah. think we all like we all like to work with other ESOP companies when we find them out there, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of cooperation. Yeah, I haven't seen that someone has an ESOP rate, but you know, nevertheless, it, it affects the it affects the whole spirit of the commercial relationship. Mm -hmm. well, I've I found out that our architect was ESOP after they won a beauty contest on all the other criteria, but but we didn't have an ESOP preference that we were trying to fill. I think we're moving across the woman here in the uh, floral shirt. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Lauren Rosenbaum from Axion. We do micro and small business lending in the US. Um, my question is, uh, a lot of your companies are fairly large. Um, and I'm wondering if ESOP is still relevant for uh, small, smart, small startup um, and you know mainstream businesses, or if there's maybe a stepping stone that could also have elements of employee ownership before an ESOP. Hmm. I mean, I think it's still relevant. Uh, there are certain startup costs that probably make it, could make it a little expensive at the beginning. I think there's probably cases of co-ops having migrated into ESOPs as they become larger too. That might be another path. But there's a lot of small ESOPs out there as well too. Um, I think there's a lot of management practices and culture that you heard today that can be applied in a startup and profit sharing and cash plans and things that could create the groundwork. We, we were both talking about we, we were kind of ESOP-y even before we were ESOP in, in terms of philosophies. Um, so, uh, so I think you could get that done and then maybe when you reach a point where these startup costs kind of work, then go ESOP. Amy Eileen Fisher did that model, basically, going right, from... Right, that's exactly mm -hmm. right. Yeah, from the profit sharing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the back... Uh... Hello. Uh, my name is Carl Pulzer, and um, I do a lot of work on financial inclusion. And I, I appreciate all... This has been terrific, but the model is only available to a small fraction of Americans. And yet the, the principle of having everybody an owner and everybody having retirement savings... How do we broaden that, those concepts? And one way you could do it, I just throw this out. I mean, it's a kind of a watered-down way, and it's more general. If you had, if you took part of the exclusion from taxes for, for the employer contribution to retirement, and you converted it into a tax credit, and every single American got a little bit of money that could go in an IRA or a 401k, every single person would be an owner of some kind of asset, and every single and every single person would have some kind of retirement plan to begin with. You know, when they top from jobs that don't have these kinds of plans or even, even retirement plans available. So we could generalize these concepts in a lot of ways, just, just hmm. for reaction. Thank you. Any thoughts on, on that? Uh... I mean, that's a bigger discussion. I would say part of the power of ownership, though, is when you are very much connected to the enterprise in which you have that ownership stake. I think that's where a lot of power comes. That would be a little more dispersed and not as focused, but you know, that's the only issue I could see with that possible. I think the other best practice, and we just had a Nobel Prize winning economist this year who won for this idea, is the idea of auto-enrollment in, in, in whatever retirement plan that you're, you know, you have to opt out, but you're automatically enrolled. They don't, they don't do that at my company, and there's been some you know, people pushing to try to auto-enroll even at the Washington Post. 
Um, and I think what's, you know, that the ESOP plan, you're basically auto-enrolled because as soon as you get there from day one, you know, you're on this path to getting the vest or to getting, exactly. getting that piece of paper. So in that sense, it's, it's best practices of, of the retirement industry. And I think you're right. I, it seems obvious that more companies should do some version of that. Well, we've got everybody from Nobel Prizes to <laughs> folks on this stage talking about how great it is. Um, there was a hand in the front. I'm sorry we haven't gotten to you for a while. Way, way on the far left. So. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Mike Bartlett, National Governors Association. And I'm going to have a somewhat self-serving question. <laughs> but, you know, as we know, governors are very focused on uh, connecting people to great careers, supporting entrepreneurship, uh, supporting economic mobility. What, I'd love your all's thoughts on what's the opportunity for governors or for state policy to support the growth of these types of uh, organizations and to support your all's businesses? Yeah. Well, you know, thank you. I just, you know, an immediate thought, this is very specific, but the, the first thing that comes to my mind is this um, benefit corporation movement. And um, I think currently there are 34 states that recognize um, public benefit corporations. and. And you know, in parallel, the B Corporation certification process. You know, you get points <laughs> if, you, if you care about these things. You get points for being um, employee-owned, and for for having some kind of ownership model, shared ownership model. Um, and I think the point about that is, it is just recognized that this is a good business practice, and especially for businesses who are quote unquote responsible or who are values-based or mission-driven, and who want to do the best thing for their workers. And um, so I think greater support at the state level for those states who have not recognized this um, legislation yet, or for those that do recognize it and haven't figured out a way to incentivize more companies to, to move that forward, I think it's a great model. Hmm. I've, I've had governors come and their entire development staffs come to our offices in Chicago and try to talk to us about relocating to various <laughs> states. Uh, and I thought, wow, wouldn't that money be better spent encouraging companies they already have that are privately owned, that are entering sort of a change of ownership stage of life and giving them incentives. Because once they become an ESAP, they're not leaving the state then. You know, and so I think a real focus on keeping the companies you have, there's a lot of baby boomers now who are at that point where their kids don't want the business and they, they need to do something with the business. If states could make this option prevalent to them and uh, make them aware of it and somehow encourage it a little bit, it would be much more powerful than trotting around the country trying to lure other businesses, I think. And you were talking a bit about that in Vermont and what the we, center... Uh, we, we have a Vermont Employee Ownership Center um, and I would agree with Stephen that um, there's a lot of money in current budgets that are going to specific industries in the state um, trying to to recruit other businesses or to favor this industry over that. I think, I think the succession issue and the challenge and the opportunity that we've heard today uh, needs some more money than it's getting now, which is. <laughs> Particularly with all the anxiety about retiring baby boomers mm -hmm. over yep. tsunami. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, we had one in the back. This is a question from Twitter, and it might be good for Dr. Blasey. Um, can you talk about the different types of ESOPs and employee ownership models? For example, partial ESOPs, 100% ESOPs, and worker-owned cooperatives. I think they're going to bring you a mic here. Well, at this point in time, for transitions from retiring business owners, um, 
they start out selling about 30% of the company to an ESOP, but they then get to 50% or 100%. But there's an interesting company in California, I'm not gonna name it, it's a privately held company, but it's a family business with a bunch of, uh, uh, let's say, house-related uh, products with stores throughout California. And the family has enough sons and daughters and cousins and grandchildren that they wanna be mostly family-owned. And they have a very uh, interesting 20% ESOP that's been really good for their employees. And I think, just to go to the issue that Steve was talking about, um, uh, and your question is sort of imagine if, imagine if every small family business which does have a son or daughter and a grandson and grandchildren had a 20 or 30% ESOP in America, that would also be a really big thing. <clears throat> uh, typically for smaller companies with the median employment of 10 or 11, we have you know, 7,000 workers and 400 worker cooperatives. Worker cooperatives are now using this business transition with other companies. But there are other forms of employee ownership which ha are not, haven't been represented today. We talk about them in the backgrounder that we wrote, which is in your packet. And in stock market companies, we see in tech, uh, like Amazon and Google, which provide grants of restricted stock and to uh, broad-based to all of their employees. I should note that Google also has a gain-sharing plan and a fairly broad-based stock option plan for its, for its management. And uh, they're not doing ESOPs, but that's very consistent with this employee ownership model. <clears throat> we see a number of public companies, stock market companies that have employee stock purchase plans, uh, which uh, uh, provide uh, a 15% discount on purchasing the stock to employees. There used to be a lot of other positive advantages that those things had that companies are pulling back on, but that's a model out there. Uh, it's a model that's kind of going downhill. It requires its own separate legislation. And then the startup issues that no one spoke better to than Representative Paulson. If we want a capital shares economy, we need a diversified public policy agenda at both the federal and the state and, well, it's not both, and the local government on all forms of capital shares. ESOPs have done a really good job of testing the ground and building up a model that we can look at. We have now 40 years of academic evidence uh, about it. Thank you. The lady back there has had her hand. Oh, yes. Sorry, we missed you. You're right by the microphone. Hi, I'm Carolyn Poplin. Um, I'm an attorney. I, I remember ESOPs vaguely from the 60s and 70s. Uh, it sounds like these are mostly private companies. So when someone leaves or retires, how do you value the stock or their share? Because you don't have a market. There's a regulatory requirement to have them valued by professional valuation firms. Every year. Every year. And so that is just kind of the, the annual administrative work that gets done at a price with all the certificates that come afterwards, that's the transparency and, and sharing the information. But that, that would be the price you would be buying back at. Because we're a little larger, we actually value quarterly. And when the quarter comes out, uh, we have employees who are hovering, you know, waiting <laughs> to see that price. So. Thank you. 
Hi, um, my name is Kevin McPhillips, and I'm the executive director of the Pennsylvania Center for Employee Ownership. Hmm. And what we're trying to do from a grassroots level is very much what the Aspen Institute is doing here today, and very much what the Vermont Center is doing, uh, Steve, up there. Um, I heard wonderful stories today about what this has done for culture and for the individuals in your uh, companies. But what I'm also hearing underneath is rather broad business growth. And my question to the panel is, what role do you think the ESOP may have had in the growth of your company? And if more companies knew about this, what could that do for our broader economy? No, I, I don't have any, um, the numbers in my head right now are the statistics, but I'll just say that in general, you know, we're as an employee, uh, an apparel company, which is in is a very tough market, you know, last few years, um, we continue to, to see growth in our company. Um, a couple years ago, you know, we had one of our biggest years ever. And I can't specifically say it's directly tied to the ESOP. However, I will say that it's directly tied to the fact that every employee in the company is very focused on doing everything they can possibly do to, to do their best work, which contributes to the bottom line. And there's, some, there's a sense of kind of all hands on deck. We're in it, whether we're doing well, we're in it together, whether we are having a tough year. And um, it's up to every single person to help find the solution to the challenges as well as the opportunities. So, you know, that's like ESOP culture that has come into play for us. And one of the beauties is you know many companies, they think growth, oh, we'll go buy something. You know, that's the easy way. We know we really can't do some mega merger. You know, it's not consistent with our capital structure. That makes us think about growing organically and emphasizing innovation. And, and so you've got engaged people who you've unleashed to think about new ideas to grow. We think that's a powerful combination. There's some good research that is ESOP companies no participation and ESOP companies with high participation cultures. And I, I think you could refer to that if you wanted the strong kind of research base. But um, ESOP per se, without the culture and a lot of the other things you heard, isn't necessarily the magic bullet. As I recall, Professor, uh, <laughs> it is both where, where we get that nice bump on all those metrics. And I'll just chime in on all of that. Because we are primarily a technology company, we cannot rest on our laurels. We have to be thinking long term. So we always have to be thinking about what's next. What, trying to stay even two steps ahead of our customers and saying, what is the need going to be next? And how do we get out in front of it to make sure that uh, we're able to keep growing and, and continue to pay the shareholders that have already retired and that make sure that retirement is there for those that are following behind? Hmm. Um, Professor Blasey, does it matter the level of, of uh, ESOP ownership. We've seen some different levels on this stage, you know, going from maybe a 40% up to 100. This, is there, I mean, you would think there would be more benefit the higher you got, more of these cultural and economic benefits, but is there support in that in the research? The, the data show that there's no direct relationship between the wealth assets that the employees can build up and whether it's 100% or 20 or 30% employee owned. It's really important to note that there's a huge industry effect. Mm -hmm. So in manufacturing, uh, companies are very valuable manufacturing companies. Uh, here we have an example. The, the ESOP accounts can be very, very large. Uh, if you're going to have ESOP in a retail store, like a supermarket with very thin market, uh, pr profit margins, you probably want 100% uh, ESOP mm -hmm. 
uh, ESOP there. So it, you know, it 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 depends. Uh, there's no model that says 100% of every company needs to be to be ESOP to have true value for employees. As I gave the example of this series of family-owned business where businesses where, and I can't disclose them, the wealth per worker in the 20% ESOP are in the hundreds of thousands uh, of, 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 of dollars. Thank you. Well, um, this is, oh, do we have one more? You, you'll round us out there. Hi, I'm Amanda Newman. I'm here with the Aspen Institute. I was wondering what the data show about the business performance of ESOPs compared to non-ESOP companies. Do you want to take that one? Or unless the, maybe You know, there, there's been several studies uh, in the period since 2000 through the recession, around the session, recession, and they have outperformed. I mean, which is, is not surprising. I mean, you, you have engaged employees who care, and they, out, they have outperformed the S&P 500, you know, during that period as well, if you measure it that way. So not only do you have employees who are better off, you know, your businesses are better off too. I mean, there's still risk, like any business, right? And, and so you always have to be aware of that, but they have outperformed. First, give a round of applause to this wonderful panel. Thank you all very much. And, and I also want to give a round of applause um, uh, to our wonderful colleague, Claire Davis, who's been my partner in putting together these Working in America series for these past couple of years. She's hiding out there. But, <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, this is her last one, and you know, in that grand tradition of not thanking people until they're leaving you, um, <laughs> it's important to thank her. She's leaving us um, in a few weeks to pursue uh, a PhD at Stanford, uh, so that is definitely their gain and our loss, but we're so grateful for all the hard work she's done with us on this series, so thanks, big thanks to Claire. Um, and thanks to all of you for your great questions, for joining us for this conversation, and for coming to our, our Working in America series events. I just want to say uh, thank you to you for your engagement and that we'll be um, in touch with you all soon about our next event here in the Working in America series. So thank you all so much. And um, uh, have another snack before you go if you didn't get something. Um, thank you. <laughs>